0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Podcast Series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading
1: thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics
0: give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney all on one night, Wednesday, the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast.
2: Welcome everyone. I'm Diane Mayer. I'm the Head of School and Dean of the Sydney School of Education and Social Work here at the University of Sydney. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. But before we begin, as we usually do at the University of Sydney, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. So this place where we are has been a place of learning for tens of thousands of years. And we are delighted to continue working with First Australians to ensure that this um, continues to be a uh, significant place of learning. So welcome to our Sydney Ideas Dean's lecture series this evening contact and communicative openness in adoption. I'm so pleased that you have all able to find time in your busy schedules to be with us this evening and particularly on such a cool evening to come out but it's nice and cozy in here so um, we'll be good. Um, The Sydney School of Education and Social Work has been partnering with Sydney Ideas to present these Dean's Lecture Series now for um, maybe two years Um, and we've had a a number of very successful events and we're looking forward to this evening as one of those. We've got another one coming up in a couple of weeks time on the 13th of September. by um, Professor James Conroy from the University of Glasgow, who's going to be talking about something quite different than this evening, Brexit and otherness, a modest, unsystematic reflection. So that's the little plug for one in a couple of weeks' time. Um, Your MC for this evening is Associate Professor Amy Connolly Wright, who is the Director of the Institute of Open Adoption Studies. We're very excited about this significant development, the Institute of Open Adoption Studies, which has been funded by the New South Wales Government. Um, And the University of Sydney has been working in partnership with Barnardo's to develop this institute. And this is one of the very first significant public events um, being hosted and um, organised by the institute. And, of course, we're um, extremely pleased that we have our minister, Prue here with us this evening um, to talk about this particular topic as well. So the topic we're going to be talking about tonight will explore children's need to understand why they were adopted and the importance of having knowledge of their birth family and their personal history. Our speakers are going to share with us their personal and professional experience of adoption. We know that there are many gaps in the evidence about the best way to support contact and open communication in the Australian context of adoption. However, both international and national research is clear that open and honest communication is positive for children's identity development. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank Professor Elsbeth Neal for coming all the way from the University of East Anglia, Anglia in the UK to be with us tonight. Beth is going to be on the panel and is going to share with us some of her experience gained from the contact after adoption study that she's been part of. An 18 year longitudinal study of adopters, adopted children and young people and birth relatives. But now it gives me very great pleasure to welcome our first speaker, the New South Wales Minister for Family and Community Services, the Honourable Prue Goward, who's going to provide the opening address for tonight's event. Prior to entering Parliament in to- 2007, Prue served as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner and also commissioner responsible for age discrimination. During her time with the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, she became best known for her advocacy of a national paid maternity leave scheme, the implications of demographic change and the challenge of work-life balance. Prue spent 19 years with the ABC as a reporter and national political commentator for television and radio. She's received a number of awards for journalism, including a special Walkley Award, of course, journalism's highest honour. More recently, Prue and the New South Wales government have invested in programs to help children to find permanent loving homes through guardianship orders or open adoption if return to home is not possible. I invite the minister to come and talk more about these initiatives. Thank
3: you. Thank you, Diane, for that um, very extensive introduction. Uh, To the traditional owners, the Gadigal people of the Aeora nation, to the many distinguished academics who are with us tonight, uh, distinguished guests, including uh, those with lived experience of adoption. And I am thrilled to have been asked to open the Dean's Lecture Series this evening, focusing on contact and openness and communication in adoption. This evening is very much an opportunity for all of us to come together to explore the evidence and the lived experience of adoption so that we can all continue to learn in this important area of permanency work. Open adoption is one way we can ensure Children and young people who cannot live safely with their family will have a safe, nurturing and loving home for life. They will grow up knowing where they came from whilst also having stability, predictability and a nurturing family environment that open adoption can provide well beyond the age of 18. And I am very proud uh, that in this last Uh, financial year, New South Wales achieved the highest number of open adoptions from care ever. Ever. 129. More than the rest of the country put together by a long shot. And that remarkable number, as I hope to demonstrate, has been made possible by the commitment and hard work of many people. There are many moving parts in the adoption process, Uh, And uh, all the political will in the world uh, will never be enough to ensure uh, a change. You need the parts to change and to move with you. So I'm grateful for the work of our accredited adoption teams and our regional adoption caseworkers who every day undertake that high-quality casework that is required to progress adoptions from care. Uh, I think it's also important to acknowledge the commitment and hard work of uh, NGO partners on this journey, particularly Barnardo's. And we know from FACTS research in 2016 that adoption does require highly developed casework skills, sensitive and open communication, capacity in our workplaces, and a culture of understanding of the many benefits that open adoption can provide children and young people. And we need to commend the practitioners and the teams who have recognized the challenged, challenges, done the work and undertaken the practice. And because of this, because we have recognized the complexity of this change, I think we can expect adoptions to continue to increase And that's because of these reforms. So the Adoption Task Force has made great inroads to address the backlog of adoption matters in the system. They have worked with the Supreme Court to improve the timeframes for the completion of adoption matters. And I'm very grateful, uh, and children need to be very grateful, for the many local champions of open adoption who tirelessly promote its benefits. The late Louise Voigt, uh, it was one such champion who paved the way, really like no other, who could have defied Louise. I'm also grateful for the research that is happening in our state in the area of open adoption. Sound, independent, rigorous research on best practice in open adoption does enable us and will continue to enable us to implement policy and practice that is truly in the best interests of children and young people. Continuous improvement and reform to our out-of-harm-care system remains a priority of this government. We want all our children to reach their full potential in life. And, of course, on this pathway, the adoption pathway, we also recognise that we need and we must give parents who put their children at risk real opportunity to change, real opportunity, not ticking a box. And that's why we've invested in new evidence-based diversionary programs that will help up to 900 children and their families each year stay together. And half of those places are for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. In our new system, a child or young person will have a case plan with a goal for permanency within two years. Safety, permanency, and well-being are the three priority outcomes we will and we must achieve for our children and young people who are at risk of entering and those who do enter our out of home care system. So we will be implementing a new approach to the recruitment, development and support of guardians adoptive parents, and people who want to support a child while families get help. We will stop the drift in care experiences that we know are so detrimental to a child's experience. 20, 30 placements over a childhood. We will shift away from a placement-based service system to a child and family-centred service system. Our non-government partners will be be funded differently from October this year to prioritise providing children with a childhood outside of the care system wherever possible. So out-of-home care providers will be asked to prioritise providing children with a childhood outside of foster care. There will be a number of funding packages and targeted support packages that can be mixed and matched to suit a child or a young person's individual needs, uh, all to ensure that we achieve our case plan goals. Fifty new permanency coordinators will work around the state to support high-quality permanency planning casework. Continual case review will support those permanency goals once we've set them and we will have the legislation to support our permanency work instead of long-term parental responsibility orders we will utilize shorter term court orders so children spend less time in out-of-home care and more time getting on with being a child and experiencing real repair from past trauma past abuse, past neglect. So I'm delighted at the exciting research agenda of the Institute of Open Adoption Studies and the opportunity that we have this evening to inspire the way we do open adoption in the future. This is an opportunity for deep reflection and for deep thinking. It is as a result of that learning, that reflection, that thinking from the past that we've been able to implement this model of openness in our adoption practice and that that's been the case for over 20 years. Australia has arguably the most open model of adoption in the world that embraces a child's right to know their history and to have an ongoing relationship with their birth families wherever wherever possible. Family-led, child-focused and more natural, flexible contact arrangements send a very good, positive message to children. It tells them that their life story, their identity, and their birth-family relationships are important. But how do we know when we get that contact right? How do we make sure that that contact is meaningful? How do we know when contact is not meeting a child's needs or supporting relationships as it should be? And how do we fix that? What supports do practitioners need to help them to have these important, very important conversations with children, with birth families, and with carers about adoption? Well, we need research to help tell us. We need evidence to inform us. So I ask you, I call on you here today, to remember the reasons why we need research on contact and communicative openness to inform the way we work in the future. And that is that every child should feel safe. Every child should feel they belong to their family and to their community. Every child should have stability, certainty and opportunity in their life. Children only have one cl- one chance at childhood. So let's work together that they do have uh, the best childhood possible. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much to Minister Goward for that opening address um, and for sharing the importance of contact, and communicative openness that we'll be discussing this evening. My name is uh, Professor, Associate Professor Amy Conley-Wright, and I'm the Director of the Institute of Open Adoption Studies, and it's my pleasure to welcome you and to introduce our panelists this evening. So I'm going to introduce each panelist in turn, and they're going to come and speak for us with a um, lectern for about 10 minutes, and then I'm going to invite them to sit down, and we will have a question and answer session. We will take questions on cards uh, for the sound quality, uh, since we're audio-taping the session. So if you have a question, if you could just raise your hand, and a member of the staff of the Institute will come around and give you a card, and then we'll we'll respond to as many questions as we can during the question and answer. So it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, uh, Professor um, Elizabeth Neal, and Beth has been with us for the week, and I'd like to thank her for coming all the way from the University of East Anglia to be with us tonight. As well as being a professor of social work, Beth has several years of practical experience in social work in the United Kingdom. This experience has ensured that her research work has contributed to the development of accessible and practical resources for professionals involved in the work of making positive post-adoption contact arrangements and supporting birth relatives and adoptive families through contact planning for their children. And we hope to learn from the research that Beth has conducted in the UK to consider how it can inform the design of resources and tools applicable to the particular legislative and practice environment of New South Wales and Australia. During her visit to Sydney, Beth has been sharing her expertise and research with the Institute, and we are hoping this exchange will be the beginning of an ongoing collaboration between the University of East Anglia and the Institute. I'd like to invite Beth to please come and join us now to share her remarks.
0: Thank you, Amy, for inviting me to speak at this event, and thank to all of you for coming along to listen. I began studying open adoptions over 20 years ago now in 1996, and I still remember really vividly the first family that I went to talk to in in my research, which started as a PhD study. And I want to just talk about this one family to try and illustrate a lot of the key issues that I've learned over the years. I learned so much in just those first two hours of talking to this family, and I think those ideas have carried on over the next 20 years. So I went to see... uh, This uh, married couple, they'd adopted two children from two different birth families. I was talking to them about their younger daughter. I'll call her Eleanor, that's not her real name. Um, And they'd adopted her when she was one and a half, and I was coming there about a year later. So Eleanor was just a little toddler, about two and a half. And she'd been adopted from care. She'd had some quite difficult experiences when she was little. And her social worker had really pushed for her to remain in contact with her grandparents and also with her birth mum, who was quite a young, vulnerable young woman who'd already had uh, one child adopted through the care system. So this couple started to talk to me about the birth family contact that they were just in the early days of having. And what really struck me most when they were talking about this was how tuned in they were to their little daughter, Eleanor, as an adopted person. They were, although she was just a toddler, they were already projecting into the future. They were thinking, what's she going to be like as a teenager? What's going to be like for her when she's in her 20s or 30s? How's she going to feel? What's she going to want and need? They were putting themselves in her shoes and thinking about how she's going to feel about her birth family and about why she was adopted. They also had a lot of feelings of their own about meeting up with her birth family. They felt pretty nervous about that. They worried particularly about meeting up with her birth mum, that uh, what if... You know, birth mom was gonna be hostile towards them. What if birth mom didn't like them, didn't approve of them? And they had this particular fear that Eleanor, even though she actually hadn't lived with her birth mom for maybe about a year and probably didn't really remember her, that this blood tie, it's something special, it's something magical. What if Eleanor sees her birth mom and, you know, runs into her arms and they're gonna be out of the picture? But despite all their own worries and feelings, they wanted to kind of push through this barrier to do what they hoped was going to be best for their daughter. So they talked about the first time they met Eleanor's birth mum, and it was a pretty tricky meeting. Um, They said that birth mum was quite frosty with them, really. But they tried to, again, put themselves in her shoes and think, well, you would feel like that, wouldn't you, if you were in this mum's position, and they tried to make her feel welcome and included and reassure her. They felt um, pretty sad for Eleanor's birth mum, but also they were hopeful that this contact was going to help them as a family, and it was going to break down or stop barriers being put up between themselves and their daughter, that they'd have this open atmosphere in their family. And I think I came away from that very first interview thinking, wow, you know, what a lucky kid Eleanor is. Because whatever happens with this birth family contact, there's something here about who these parents are and how they think and how they feel that's going to really help her as she grows up as an adopted person. It's a really enduring resource, these characteristics of this." Um, parent, that they're always going to try and understand what it's like for her to be adopted. And they're going to try and help her put together her life story in a way that's realistic about her mum, but sympathetic and empathic. And I think that core idea has really just grown and solidified as my research has continued. And it's chimed in with the ideas of other researchers, particularly in America, the work of David Brzezinski, who's talked about, uh, introduced this idea of adoptive parents being communicatively open, open to thinking and talking about the meaning of adoption in their lives, open to talking to their child about adoption, open to including the birth family, and empathic for the birth family, empathic for their child as an adoptive person. My first interview with a birth family member in this research was also with Eleanor's birth mum. And again, that's a really vivid memory for me. And uh, she told me her perspective on this contact. She told me that she absolutely did not want to like Eleanor's adoptive parents. She resented them. She thought, I'm going to hate them. They're taking my child away. But, um, And she was also very worried. What are they gonna think of me? Are they gonna judge me for what's happened to my daughter? She found that first meeting really, really hard. Particularly, her daughter didn't really seem to recognize her. She talked about Eleanor wrapping her arms around her adopted dad's legs. Uh, And it really, you know, she had a funny, understated way of saying things. And she said, that hurt my feelings. But it also, I suppose that really reinforced for her, yes, she was in some ways losing her daughter. But on the other side, she said, it was amazing how well Eleanor looked, how much she'd grown, how happy she looked. Um, And she was proud of her beautiful daughter. But going back to those sad feelings, she said again in her really understated way, oh, it was lucky my social worker was there to talk to me afterwards and take me home. And I think that's another one of my important messages about, you know, people need support through these difficult experiences. By the time she went for the second meeting, she'd relaxed a bit, and she really then started to feel a bit differently about her daughter's adoption. She started to feel... Eleanor's going to have a good life. Actually, she's going to maybe have a bit of a better life than I could have given her or that I had myself. And what was vital about that was that she knew she wasn't going to be shut out of that life. And I think here is one of my second main learning points about contact, that positive experiences of contact can be really transformational for people. I mean, I absolutely understand that when your child is taken away against your will, you're going to feel angry, resentful, all sorts of feelings. And those feelings don't go away. But we have to remember, you know, when we're thinking about planning contact, that when parents are showing these feelings, they don't look like a good candidate for having contact. But we need to try anyway, because the experience of being included and welcomed can help parents to feel a bit better. So I started to form ideas about contact, you know, not as an event, but as a relational experience. It's about people getting on together. It's about meaningful encounters, which bring about change for adoptive parents and birth parents and children. As my studies continued over further two waves, I've been able to do less and less of the data collection myself, but I've always gone back to Eleanor and her family and her grandparents and her mother and done those interviews. And that's been a fantastic privilege for me and a really vivid way for me to learn about how these arrangements then unfold over time and how we need to have, uh, be able to be flexible to deal with these dynamics. So when I first met Eleanor, she's a really lively toddler climbing all over the place, not speaking yet. For her, meeting with her birth mom didn't have a lot of meaning or relevance at that age. Um, Her parents said, you know, she's responding to her mom as if she's maybe a stranger or possibly like a distant aunt. By the time I talked to Eleanor when she was eight, that had definitely changed. She really knew who she was going to see. She really valued the chance to meet with her birth mum. She talked about seeing her lovely, smiling face, seeing her curly hair. It was really starting to have some meaning for her. And the contact with her birth family had really changed from these initial meetings which were taking place in the social services office family room. Eleanor's parents had been able to build quite a close relationship, particularly with the grandparents. And the two families had started um, going to events together. They'd been to a barbecue around grandma and grandpa's where birth Mum had come as well. There were cousins there. They were even talking about a camping holiday together. And again, I think this type of contact would have been unthinkable initially because you need a level of trust before you can have this type of meeting and that takes time to grow. But they built this up over the years, slowly and gradually. And I think this is another learning point that is true of many contact arrangements that we've studied that the collaboration and the relationship between the adults and the willingness to work together is central to getting a positive experience that is valuable for the child. And these qualities and dynamics take time to grow. By the time Eleanor was 18, I'm going back for the third time, the story had taken quite a dramatic turn. And this happened to quite a few families in our study, that these children that had experienced really difficult things in early life, it takes its toll, it comes out sometimes in the teenage years. And for Eleanor, being a teenager had not been easy. It had not been easy for her at school. She'd found it hard to fit in. She would developed mental health problems. Um, the stability and the love she'd had in her adoptive family wasn't enough actually to ameliorate very difficult early experiences. Against this turbulent time in her life, the contact with her birth family needed to be reviewed again. There were times in her teenage years where she needed to see maybe quite a bit more of her birth mum, but there were other times when she couldn't see them at all. She had too much else going on. She couldn't think about it. She couldn't face it. Um, when I interviewed her, she was in a period of she hadn't seen her family for a while. She hadn't wanted to, but she was clear she wanted to open up again in the future. Her journey as an adopted person you know, wasn't at all finished. Throughout all her troubles and difficulties as a teenager, her parents had really totally stood by her and accepted her for who she was. I met her and they told me all these problems that had happened. And then they said, she's an amazing person. She's a wonderful girl. We love her so much. They didn't need her to be perfect. They didn't need to have an exclusive relationship with her. But she was absolutely their daughter. And those characteristics that were evident in the first interview had really stood the test of time. And for me, confirmed my theory that if we can find adoptive parents who are good at openness, we can find adoptive parents who are good at adoption. I hope by talking about this one family, I've got across some of my key ideas that I've learned about open adoption that contact is not just a letter or a visit. It's about what the individuals bring to these meetings, how they interact, how they change each other. There's not one contact plan that's going to work for every family, and even if you get a contact plan that's working, you're maybe going to need to change it as situations change and people's change. Families will vary in how able they are to manage the complexities of contact and really resourceful parents like Eleanor's can take on a lot of that complexity themselves, but other people will need support and help. Even Eleanor's parents needed some help in those teenage years when things got tricky. So I think my final point, contact involves this emotional and relational work It's challenging, without a doubt, these types of open adoptions. But I think that's true of so many of the most rewarding experiences in our lives. They're the most challenging experiences as well. That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you very
4: much, Beth. I'd like to introduce our second speaker, Helmut Ullman. Helmet was adopted as a young child from out-of-home care. He is an artist and a social entrepreneur with a passion for creating and connecting. Helmut holds a Bachelor of Communication and a Bachelor of Applied Leadership in Critical Thinking and is the founder of Busk for a Cure and Bunk Bed Beats. And today, tonight, he is uh, graciously sharing his personal story and journey with us, and I would like to thank him for his openness.
5: Thank you. Openness normalizes taboos. And I'm an example of that. When I was a kid, when I was two years old, I had the mental and physical abilities of a two-month-old. And the doctors thought that I had some kind of mental disability. After a few months, oh, not even a few months, it was only a few days, actually, after a few days of testing and observing me, they saw that actually this kid's normal. He just didn't have the nurturing and care that was needed to be able to develop a normal a, a normal cognitive function. So I was adopted. So I was adopted. I was taken out of that situation. And over the years, it's continued to affect me, of course, as it would anybody. But thanks to the openness of my adoption it didn't define me. Thanks to the openness of my adoption, it was like having brown hair or being a boy for me. It was just a normal part of life. And so I remember when I went to school and I told people I was adopted, it just kind of came up in conversation. People would go, oh, I'm so sorry, or what? And, all, and you watch TV, you turn, on, you turn on a movie and there's all this sob story. And I just did not relate to that whatsoever. I I would be kind of dumbfounded when people would express sympathy for me. Because for me, it was just like having brown hair. When I went to access visits, I always left them being grateful and appreciative of being able to have seen my biological mother and to have that contact with her. But even more grateful and just as appreciative for the fact that I was living with the parents that I did have and had the opportunities that I did have. Every time I talk at one of these events or, I, or I, uh, I'm in the newspaper, something adoption related, I always get a couple of crazy people messaging me on Facebook or sending me an email going, adoption is evil and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I really empathise with them and I really do feel sorry for them because they are an example of what closeness does because a closed adoption is absolutely not appropriate and I cannot imagine how different my interpretation of my experience would be today had I not known, had I found out yesterday or when I was 18 that I was adopted, had it not been a normal part of my life, had it not been like having brown hair or being a boy. My life would be entirely different. It would define my life. Instead of being a part of my life, it may well be my life. So I'm incredibly grateful for openness in adoption. In the same way that, that feminism had paved the way for openness in gender discussions and in gender equality, in the same way that the gay rights movement paved the way for openness in, in sexuality discourse, in sexuality ideas. Um, that's what open adoption had done for me. So I want to express that uh, it's, that. It's a gift that you give to a child to be able to normalise an already broken experience, to be able to normalise something that is so inherently abnormal, to be able to give the gift of normality or at least a sense of normality to something that only can ever occur if there's already been a great deal of sad circumstances. So thank you to everybody here tonight to, for your support of open adoption because I really do believe that is the future and openness is, is the way to go. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much, Helmut. I'd like to introduce now Lynn Moga. Uh, Lynn is a social worker with Bernardo's Australia, and she has over 35 years of experience in the field of adoption from out-of-home care, both in the UK and in Australia. Lynn has worked for Bernardo's Australia Open Adoption Program since 1986 as both a practitioner and manager, and Lynn is currently part of a team conducting unique research into the outcomes of open adoption for those children adopted through Bernardo's since 1987. We look forward to the first research report being released from the study and interviews with adoptive families and to hear more about this important
6: research. Thank you for joining us, Lynn. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Minister and Beth and Helmut. Um, It was wonderful to hear your contributions, but such a hard hard act to follow, so Um, I'll try. Um, For those of you who don't know about Barnardos, and I don't know if many of you don't, but we became an adoption agency in 1985 to meet the permanency needs for children in out-of-home care. And we've never really been involved in local infant adoption. So the initial focus of our agency was on referrals of children aged 5 to 12. And these children had always known who they were, where they came from, had been in out-of-home care and had contact. So of course contact continued for those children. Whilst our age range has now changed and we look at referrals of children aged not to 8 years, we still have that focus on contact, on openness and every single adoption order that has been made through our program has had arrangements for both direct and indirect contact. There is a great deal of international research and practice knowledge that talks about the benefits and the importance of contact and openness and particularly the communicative openness as much as that face-to-face direct contact and while we know of some of those benefits I'll just summarize some of them the children and and Helmut has spoken about this the better sense of who you are of knowing your adoption identity, knowing your birth family, maintaining contact and relationships with people of significant importance to you, of having access to information for your reasons of being in care and helping young people and children understand their life story. But it also, we also know that it brings adoptees closer to their adoptive parents as well as giving them reassurance about the well being and the safety of their own families. For both parents, they can also be reassured about their, about their child's well being and happiness. Um, I know Helmut's mother and grandmother. They were both there in court the day that Helmut was adopted, which is quite an unusual occurrence. And they would come and they were very grateful for the fact that they knew that he was in a loving family. So it gave them a sense of being an ongoing part of his life and other birth parents have told us that as well. It also helps with that sense of the reality of knowing what's happening with your child. And we often talk about the benefits for adoptees and birth parents, but we often forget the adoptive parents. And for adoptive parents, they can also gain greatly from open adoption. It can give them a greater sense of that legal and emotional right to parent. They gain information about the child's history and background. It can promote a closer relationship with their adopted child and a respectful relationship with the birth family. And it can help prepare them for future issues because we know that the greater majority of adopted young people will have issues at some stage in their life about their adoption and about the reasons they're in care. So Bernardo's experience would confirm these findings, both through anecdotal evidence, through contact with young people and their families, but also through some internal research. So we have students who undertook some research in 2012 which looked at adoptions over a 10 year period of 2002 to 2011, and in 2016, looking back over the five year period from 2008 to 2013. Both these research projects found that the majority of children had contact with at least one family member, with visits occurring up to 12 times a year, depending on the child's age and the relationship they had with their relatives. More children had contact with their birth mothers than with any other family members. And most contacts occurred two to four times a year. Far fewer children had contact with birth fathers and I think that this is a finding that is not uncommon. But those that did have contact with their birth fathers, again, the main visits were two to four times a year and the frequency for both mothers and fathers was naught to nine times. In 2014, Bernardo's commissioned another research project with Professor Mark Durrani to review how open adoption supported developmental outcomes and healthy identity identity formation for adoptees. And as part of this research, Professor Durrani interviewed nine children and young people who had been adopted through Bernardo's. These interviews supported the importance of contact for the young people especially in terms of the provision of information and knowledge of their biological and family background, which gave them a sense of knowing their family, but what was important too, was seeing an amicable relationship between their birth and adoptive families. But additionally, the interviews highlighted the critical importance of the adoptive parents' role in providing a safe, positive and empathic environment in which conversations could occur about adoption and birth family, and where adoptees could feel safe to raise questions, to raise issues, and to commence those conversations. As Amy has said, we are now involved in another research project, which is a bit more adventurous than that, in that we are looking back at adoptions that occurred from July 1987 to June 2013 there are three stages to this research there's an anal- analysis of data from files we've done online surveys through with about 35% of people involved in the program and some interviews with many of those people and what we're finding is that preliminary data will again support the findings of other about the programs And what we have found is that some of the factors that appear to contribute to the positive experience of contact have been when children have been placed at a young age, and Beth was talking about that earlier, and contact becomes a normal part of their life. We've also found that when children have come into care for reasons other than abuse, contact flows a bit more easily. And particularly when adults can accept and respect the role of the other parent. When siblings are involved in contact, it's also very positive. And when contact is predictable and reliable, where there are no gaps, where parents are able to be supported to be involved in that contact. And when it occurs at a neutral venue and where there are activities and it's fun, and I think that's an important thing for kids as well. But having said that, we've known over time that venues have changed and we have social, birth family being present at social, sporting, school activities. Contacts have occurred in birth parents' homes, they've occurred in adoptive parents' homes. So there's that flexibility depending on the needs of the child. Having said that, contact remains an incredibly complex issue with inherent challenges and changing dynamics for all parties. While we attempt to establish contact arrangements for all children in the program, there are some children for whom face-to-face contact with parents is not possible, although they may have contact with siblings or with grandparents. The two student projects that I mentioned earlier found that between 32 and 14% of the children had no contact with their mother and between 50 and 30% had no contact with their father. And the percentage of, that depended on the, which research project we're looking at. So they both had different percentages. But the percentage of children having no contact did decrease as time went on later in the program. Some of the factors that we believe to be associated with the lack of contact are that there are a number of children where the identity of their fathers was unknown. We also had a number of parents who were deceased. But there were some parents who were very clearly stating to us that they did not want contact. And there were children who had a severe reaction to contact with the parent, particularly if they'd been seriously abused by them. Sometimes we had difficulty in locating a parent or other siblings, and there were also other siblings who were in placement with their parent or other relatives who did not want contact. We also know that contact changes over time, and particularly during late primary and early adolescence, often at the instigation of the young people themselves, who make the decision to cease contact with one or other parties. And some of the reasons for this are normal adolescent development and competing priorities, that adoptees in adolescence feeling that they're able to have a say in who they say, see and when they see them and that they feel empowered by that. That adoptees have a growing maturity and understanding of their childhood experiences. And we've had several adoptees who have needed an explanation for their abuse, have wanted their parents to acknowledge what's happened to them, and have wanted an apology for that. And there are also adoptees' concerns when particular birth family members cannot accept the role of their adoptive parent. And may make comments such as, she's not your real mum, you shouldn't be calling her mum. And that puts adoptees in a very difficult situation. When contact, we find that contact does change through adolescence, however, it should also be noted that it often changes again in early adulthood as adoptees renegotiate their relationships with significant family members and often reinstigate contact with particular people and we also know that in situations where there has been no contact adoptees need to search for their birth family members they need to get information to seek answers to their questions to understand their biological and their genetic background and to establish connections with family and of particular importance is the relationship with, with their siblings and we know that adoptees don't differentiate between siblings, whether they're biological, whether they're half siblings, full siblings, whether they're the children, biological children of their adoptive parents, or whether there are other children who are unrelated to them who have been adopted by the same adoptive parents. They're all siblings and they all have equal significance. And I think we we need to really bear that in mind when we're looking at contact and looking at openness is the value of siblings to young people who are adopted so we will be further exploring these issues through our research and a huge focus of our both our online questionnaires and our qualitative interviews has been on communicative openness and contact and what has happened to that over time so we're hoping that by this time next year we will have some australian research that will give us the answers to that. And I think that will be incredibly valuable for us um, because we do have a wonderful adoption legislation that does really promote openness. Whilst I can't talk about the data because it's not yet published, soon will be, um, it does support the comments I've made. And, And generally what we do find is a communicative openness, that contact is critical in in promoting young adoptees' sense of who they are, their sense of well-being, and optimum outcomes. But we also know it needs to be flexible. It needs to be fluid. It needs to allow for changes in circumstances over time for the changing needs of all the parties. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn.
4: Just a reminder before I introduce our final panelist, uh, if you do have a question that you'd like to put to the panel, if you could just raise your hand and we can come by with an index card, and we're asking you to write down your questions, and then we'll take them at the front to put to the panel. So finally, I'd like to introduce our final panelists, uh, Philippa Wellman and Pip. Um, Pip has worked for the Department of Family and Community Services since 1999, and she is leading some of the major reforms that are underway to improve permanency and stability for children entering out-of-home care in New South Wales as the Director of Child Safety and Permanency. And as adoptee herself, Pip has a unique perspective on adoption and the importance of openness and identity.
1: Thanks, Amy. Um, It's great to be here. It's quite daunting, I have to say. It is quite strange looking up at everybody. Um, And thank you to my fellow panellists for your wonderful um, speeches and to Helmut, uh, a fellow adoptee. Um, And um, I'm I'm going to share a little bit of um, my my own personal experience, which is in quite a contrast to Helmut's. And I think um, is, is really what we're here tonight to talk about, the importance of openness and what that means to identity and what it means to, um, to be actually open in your communication around adoption. But first I'd like to talk about my um, professional role. And I have worked with FACTS um, for almost 18 years now, I can't believe it. And um, I've been in child protection and out-of-home care all that time. I started as a frontline practitioner. And I can honestly say for possibly the first five years, I never really heard the word adoption. And I certainly now, looking back at some of the clients that I worked with, some of the young people, um, open adoption would have been such a wonderful opportunity for those um, children, but it was not something that was really considered an option. And I could understand that, having a, a, my own personal um, experience with adoption and a lived experience with adoption, um, that really, adoption was a dirty word. And we we kind of knew as caseworkers that if adoption was happening in New South Wales, it was um, and. Really, there was little opportunity to do casework in that area. Things started to change though, um, about five years in, so around about the, the mid 2000s. And um, I had the opportunity to work with Anglicare on an adoption for a client. Um, and it was a really wonderful experience. And then in 2008, um, as I had moved into a role in head office, and I, um, I was worked alongside the out-of-home care adoption project team, a member of who is present here today, Barb, who's been working in this area for a long time too. Um, and back in those days, the, uh, the numbers of adoptions from care were very small um, and it was very challenging to build that practice and, importantly, to really um, face the culture that... Um, that that in our casework did not promote um, adoption. And um, openness in adoption in New South Wales has been practiced for over 20 years now. Um, and for me, as um, my experience with adoption began 43 years ago um, when um, I was adopted as a, in a closed adoption. So um, I always knew. There, there was, in my family, um, there was communicative openness around my adoption. So I always knew, I can't actually remember a time that I did not know that I was adopted. And that, um, that, was, that was very important to me as well. So, Helmut, when you were saying people at school would say, you, when you'd say you're adopted, and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and it was a similar experience for me. Uh, and, and yet I was very much brought up to feel that I was special, that it was something very special about me. So I would often actually just say it. Hi, I'm Pip. I'm adopted. Um, and uh, so it was never quite like having brown hair for me. <laughs> um, and, um, but again, as we know and as research shows us, when I hit my adolescent years, and I really was trying to work out who I was. Um, and, I, and it was a very difficult time for me because it was a time for me where I thought, I don't, I don't even know, I have no idea. I can remember my, um, my mother, my adoptive mother, um, telling me that she had very little information about my um, my family, but she did know that my uncle liked riding motorbikes. <laughs> So in my mind, I had this, you know, this uncle, he was a biker, he was riding a Harley, um, and I thought, oh wow, you know. So I had, kind of had created what this, this family that I had no idea who they were, uh, was like. Um, in 1991, the adoption laws changed, and I happened to turn 18 that year. And um, shortly after um, my um, 18th birthday, I went to the birth, deaths and marriages in the city and I got my original birth certificate. Very strange experience to realise you've got two. Um, and so began my journey of identity at the age of 18. And, I, and it, it's, it's still going, that journey of identity. Because I didn't have the opportunities that open adoption that, um, that, that we have today provides um, provides, which is the, the ability to know who you are, to know and to, to have contact with the significant people in your life. So I, I you know I actually put off my search for a long time. and then in 2003, um, my daughter was born. I was 29 at this stage. I'm giving a lot away here, aren't I? <laughs> um, and the day she was born, it was the most wonderful day of my life, but it was also the first time I'd ever met anybody that I was, I was related to by blood and that, I, that looked like me. And that was a defining moment for me in my identity formation. I have since gone on to ha- um, to meet my birth father, which, as Lynn pointed out, is quite an unusual. Um, it's usually, you know, contact with um, with birth mother. Um, he he actually searched for me. And we now have a wonderful relationship, and I have half siblings uh, that are similar age to my own children, and um, we. You know, it's been a very important part of who I am. But I was 30 when my um, when my openness in adoption began for me, and when my identity formation began. And working in this area, um, surrounded by inspirational people, um, some of whom are in this room tonight, who work with vulnerable children and families, who. Um, work every day, doing the casework, doing the hard yards with that focus on permanency, focus on stability, uh, which is so important. And I know that the practitioners that are out there working in this area, um, I know that they know the importance of openness and I know that they know the important importance of identity for the vulnerable children and young people they're working with and that is why, with my own personal experience um, and my lived experience of adoption, um, I'm very, um, I'm very privileged and humbled to be working in this area. And um, openness, and particularly that communicative openness, as well as contact. It's not just about contact, how often you see. It's about your story. It's about your narrative. Um, my narrative and my lived experience of adoption is still continuing, as it will, as we know, for, for a, it's a lifelong journey. Um, and it's so wonderful to hear an experience like Helmut's that has been a really positive one, and key to it has been the openness with which that, that has occurred. Um, so, um, it's, it, this is a great conversation to be standing here and having all of us to be having a conversation about contact and openness in adoption. And it really does um, warm my heart. <laughs> and um, I really am very humbled to be standing here and talking to you. And, um, and you know, I, I love the, the work I do and really the, focusing on um, getting that permanency and openness for, for children who, who cannot live with their birth families but can maintain that contact and can maintain that openness and also maintain that their identity in that family as well. So thank you very much for being part of the conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much, Pip, and thank you to all of our speakers for sharing the wealth of their personal and professional experience with us this evening I'd like to invite you again if you have a question, if you want to write it down on a card, and you can raise your hand for a card, and one of our staff members will give you a card and collect the cards. I do have one question to start by putting to the panel. And this question, it's for Beth, but I think anyone can chime in. So a lot of the effort and focus is often on the uh, foster care or adoption placement early, uh, and then the support and focus fades. But clearly we're hearing that there's a need for support long-term and particularly in the adolescent years. So perhaps, Beth, you can start by commenting about support for the adolescent years and if anyone else wants to share about how we can provide support in the long-term for adoptive placements and particularly when they might become turbulent, for example, in adolescence.
0: Okay. I think there's uh, lots of areas where families may need help. I mean, first of all, I'd say that... um, we have to make services available for families. We mustn't kind of force them onto families because that's well, that's one of the things good things about adoption sometimes is getting out of the formal system and just being a family. So these services have to be available um, and I think support with contact is is one area where people um, can need help, dealing with the emotions, dealing with the relationships, in some cases helping to manage risk and maintain appropriate boundaries. Um, A particular area is, uh, you know, a lot of young people at 18, 19 in our study were wondering what to do next, were wondering whether, you know, if they hadn't seen their dad, whether they should go and find him, whether they should stop writing to their mom or seeing them or... It was a a time where they were indecisive and they had a lot of other stuff going on in their lives. And sometimes they wanted somebody to talk that through with outside of their parents. Yes, they had an open relationship with their parents, but sometimes teenagers just want to talk to somebody else. So I think services for, for young adults, we mustn't assume that young adopted adults have got it all sorted because they're adults. But I think the other area I would really emphasize is particularly mental health support services for adopted children. I mean, we know um, across a number of studies that children who have experienced early adversity, a significant proportion of those children may develop emotional and behavioral mental health problems. It's the exposure to um, maltreatment, exposure to drugs and alcohol in the womb, genetic vulnerabilities to mental illness. And, you know, in our longitudinal study, the children had found stability, long-term family support, love, and belonging. In spite of all of that, in late adolescence, 45% of the adopted children in our longitudinal study had emotional or behavioral problems at a clinically significant level. About one in five adopted children, and this cuts across a number of studies we've done in the UK of children adopted from care, will have very, very serious difficulties. And they need support and their families need support. And we should not wait for these problems to develop and families to be begging for help. We should put in early intervention services where families want that and need that to try and um, help these kids, you know, to recover as best as they can from these experiences. And I really do feel passionately about that. And We have a related question,
4: which is uh, first a statement that in New South Wales there is no post-adoption support that is funded. Uh, and how can we support adoptees, birth parents, adopted parents
1: through the tricky and difficult times? Um, so we do have in New South Wales a post-adoption resource centre um, or, uh, which is funded to support um, uh, um, adoptees and, and birth families as well. Um, I do understand that, that most of their, their support um, for um, over 18 so that is an area that we're looking at at the moment Um, And I understand the Institute will be doing some research as well, looking at at what kind of post-adoption support can we put into place. And certainly it's something that that we've been looking at in the policy-making area in FACTS as well. Um, And looking at, we we have um, other permanent uh, care orders in New South Wales, guardianship orders, which are relatively new, introduced in 2014. And similarly, looking at um, what kind of supports can we put in place for, um, for guardians and their, their families and, and children in, in those permanent care arrangements. So it's certainly something that is um, very much on, on the agenda, both the research agenda and, and the, the policy and program agenda as well. We have some clarification questions about
4: uh, open adoption policies so I'm going to just ask a couple of these questions because you can probably answer them fairly quickly. What percentage of adoptions are currently open in New South Wales?
1: That's an easy one. It's 100%. <laughs> Do open adoptions occur
4: when the birth parent is in prison?
6: Um, where possible, yes. So. We tend to try and do that when it's child-friendly activities, such as the Shine for Kids days. Um, But yes, unless there are are huge distances for children to travel and they're very young, but wherever possible, we have contact with parents in prison. And if it's not possible for face-to-face, then other forms of indirect contact. And sometimes there have been telephone calls, Skype calls. So there are, these days with social media, there are all sorts of ways of having contact.
4: Lynn, you might want to speak to this question as well. So the question is, should the court make contact orders? And so maybe you can speak to what what the court does around contact orders.
6: Uh, Are we talking about the Children's Court or the Supreme Court? The question
4: is, should the court make contact orders? Okay.
6: Um, My understanding is that in the Children's Court, very rarely these days do they actually make contact orders. They're normally part of the care plan. Um, In the Supreme Court, the... Arrangements for contact are part of the adoption plan, which may or may not be registered with the court. And if it's registered, then it does become a part of the order. Now, what that does is it gives some security, particularly to birth family members, that that contact will occur. But even if the plan is not registered, um, it's still a binding agreement that is signed by the parties. And if the arrangements are not kept then any of the parties can seek to go back to the court to have it addressed. Now, my understanding is that doesn't happen, or it hasn't happened so far, but I know that sort of the agencies and the department would become involved in trying to mediate. Should they make contact orders? It happens. I think what we need to do is, if orders are made, they need to be flexible. They need to have a review mechanism, because what's set for a three-year-old is not going to be what's going to work for a 15 year old
4: we have a question for helmet helmet did your contact with your birth mother change over your lifetime and if it did how did it
5: yes it definitely has um when i was a little kid i was like barely being able to remember like primary school age um the contact was um I, i kind of it was similar to the story um, uh, about the, the UK adoption, where um, Eleanor was it, where Eleanor kind of saw her biological mother as more like a distant aunt, and I wasn't really exactly sure who she was or what was going on. And then, uh, when I, as I grew older, um, one of the interesting aspects of my particular situation was that my, my biological mother kind of still kept seeing me as a little kid, even as I grew up into a teenager. So I would be 15 and, you know, getting little, um, little kids' toys and things like that. And so what's changed is that I kind of went from being the kid almost like my biological mother, a little bit like my kid. <laughs> that makes any sense. Where I kind of now, I, I visit her when, um, like she's, she's now in a, in a nursing home facility, um, and she, you know, she has a whole host of, of a difficult background herself, which is why she's where she is at, and it is a very, very sad story in her case. In fact, if she had the opportunity of open adoption that I had, um, then she would be in a very, very different situation um, because the reason that she was in her situation was that, her, um, that my biological grandmother had schizophrenia and actually stole her and took her out of, um, out of primary school, so she didn't even finish school. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of changed from me being the kid to uh, me being kind of more like kind of looking after her and me making sure that that she has her basic needs met. Thank
4: you. We have a question. How do we prepare adoptive parents best for openness? Not all will immediately see the benefits of open adoption. There's also a strong drive to create a closed family unit. So again, how do we best prepare adoptive parents for openness? I can say a
0: little bit, but I know Lynn's got experience of this too. Um, I think we do have to listen to the anxieties that adoptive parents have. We need to create a safe space where they can air those and discuss those and reflect about that. I think what adoptive parents have told me is that it helps to hear from other adoptive parents who've done it and found it manageable it helps to hear from you know people like Helmut who've had that personal experience to help them imagine because they're very focused on this young child that they want to adopt to help them to project into the future and imagine that person as a teenager as an adult so you know if you can get people like Helmut along to talk to your adoptive prospective adoptive parents or, you know, we've made videos and things of adopted young people. And it helps adoptive parents if they've got a way of understanding um, the birth parent (coughs) perspective. So, you know, to go back to Helmut's experience, he's talked to us about, he knows about his mum's background and why she had the problems she did. And I think prospective adoptive parents don't start with that knowledge of why some people uh, neglect their children, why some people abuse their children. And, you know, certainly the press in the UK doesn't help. These people are just bad, according to the tabloid papers. So we need to help adoptive parents understand where birth parents are coming from. So I think a lot of it's about empathy building and us empathising with the adoptive parents.
6: I'd support what Beth said, and, and certainly our experience is that many prospective adoptive parents come to us with a great deal of anxiety. It's often the first time that they've heard about contact after adoption. I think there is still that that image of adoption in the community that it's closed once an adoption order is made. That's it. But we find that once once they come to us, and again as Beth said, we do have adoptive parents birth parents adopted young people talking at our information sessions at our seminars and That puts a human face to it And I think quite often it's the fear of the unknown and I think if you don't know something or someone Then your mind plays all sorts of strange tricks in terms of what might happen but in reality we've been able to find that many of our adoptive parents are actually very open to the idea and if you can talk to them, if you can help them understand the reasons behind it, look at what's happened in the past, what we've learned from that, what closed adoption has meant for so many people and the impact of that, and help them understand what it might be like for them if they were a child who was adopted. And quite a few of our adoptive parents have actually had that experience, where they may have had a separation in the family, a divorce, and the thought of never seeing that particular parent. So I think there are all sorts of things that they can think about that helps give them that empathy. And we've had situations, and I was talking today, where even with contested adoptions, we have adoptive parents and birth parents in the courtroom supporting each other through that process. So we've been able to to build really respectful relationships. And I think that's... the we're not asking people to be best friends, but to respect the role of the other person. And I think adoptive parents have a huge capacity to be able to do that. I don't actually think they're looking at closed family units anymore. Our whole concept of family has just broadened. We've got all sorts of different families brought together in all sorts of different ways. And I think adoptive parents are open to that as well.
4: Thank you, we have one final question and I'm going to ask each member of the panel to address it. So, what is one thing you would change in the child protection system to increase open adoption for vulnerable
5: children? I'll opt to go last. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, one—it's th- oh, yeah, very hard to choose one thing at the moment. The the um, the program of reform that's happening in in New South Wales across the child protection and out of home care system is so huge. If I if I had to choose just one. Thing. It's really difficult. In our permanency support program, um, that is the reform program for out-of-home care, um, I, I guess the, the main pillar is the focus on permanency, um, stability and well-being. And part of that is that, we're, that from now on, um, all, all case plans for children in out-of-home care will have um, a, f- a case plan goal of permanency, whether that be through restoration, because permanency is also um, about um, restoration to um, birth parents or birth family wherever possible, uh, um, or guardianship which is also a permanent order in New South Wales, or open adoption, with the last resort um, and, and the, the least preferred um, option being parental responsibility to the Minister. And so every case plan is going to have a, a permanency goal um, with the aim of that being achieved within two years. And I think that is um, the pillar to the reforms that are currently being undertaken in New South Wales. So if I had to choose one, that would be it.
3: <laughs> um,
6: I think I would probably choose timely decision-making, that I think we need to have a focus on the child, that supports need to be put in place to allow the best decisions to be made and for them to be made in the best time frame for the child.
5: If i could
0: change one thing about the system in the uk which is a different system i would want people to stop to stop people cutting and pasting the contact plan from the last child they place for adoption into the next child they place for adoption yeah yeah just think about every child as an individual
5: and I, I'd say changing, it would be checking up with the adoptees as they grow older because I know that in my experience I had never ever had any discussion with any government body or anybody in any way about my adoption. It just kind of happened and, and it, it was fortunate that uh, I was in a situation where it happened well but there was, there was really no interaction with me and the decision that was made about me as a child as I grew older.
4: There was one other question that came in and it was for Helmet. So maybe just maybe in the spirit of openness, so you can tell us when you didn't want to see your birth mother if you when you were a teenager or when you, for your birth mother couldn't see you, what kinds of messages or words did your adoptive parents give you?
5: The 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 times that that happened in my my situation was uh, more out of again uh, a kind of a, an incapacity to see me. So she might f- have forgotten about a visit. Or have missed the bus or a few buses, things like that. Um, so I was fortunate in that I, as far as I'm aware, there was never that she did not want to see me. but when she couldn't see me, the messages and words that my adoptive uh, pa- my parents my parents gave me um, were really about that. were kind of more were addressing the, uh, the the background that my biological mother had and the reasons why she was incapable. Of, uh, of behaving in that kind of, in that normal way and meeting those normal expectations. And that was um, something that did become more and more apparent to me as I grew older. Um, and it kind of dawned on me and I kind of started realising that, that, um, that the way that my, that my biological mother uh, lived, that the, her way of being was not that of a normal adult.
4: Thank you again to our panel. There, in closing, there's no doubt that communicative openness is an important issue for children, their families, and for the practitioners who support them. We know that there are many gaps in the evidence about the best ways to support contact and open communication in the Australian context. However, both the international and national research is clear that communicative openness is positive for children's identity development. When children are unable to stay with their birth family, their ability to form a healthy and positive identity requires access to knowledge about their biological and familial history and the circumstances of their adoption. Part of the openness in open adoption is realized through the exchange of information between adoptees, their birth parents, and their adoptive parents. Uh, We have a lot more to learn um, about the nature and purposes of contact and communicative openness and how it can be tailored to meet the needs of individual children, including those needs as they mature. And we also need evidence-based tools and resources to support practitioners managing the complex and sometimes difficult relationships between birth families and adoptive families or guardians. And we have to be able to support families to foster respectful and constructive relationships in those difficult circumstances. Children learn from and model these relationships and tensions and conflict among the adults in their lives may impact on their ability to adjust to their new family and their sense of security. So I'd like to to let Helmut give us the last word as we close so and
5: yeah. I'm so sorry I just realized that this comes across as a very heartfelt question I really wanted to I feel like it might be from an adoptee and um, I I realized I had misread it um, and it said when you didn't want to see your birth mother not when the birth mother didn't want to see me Um, so that uh, kind of I never got to the point where I actively did not want to see her but there were definitely times especially as I began to uh, into adolescence and began to to recognize that she was not behaving like an like like an adult and that I kind of couldn't relate to her in that way in, 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 a, in a, what I would have considered at the time as a normal way that I was very I was reluctant at times and and, and, I, and when I expressed that kind of apprehension um, my, my, my parents kind of talked to me about how um, I have I am of so much value to her and how it's a gift that I'm able to give to her by being able to turn up to those adopted by seeing her and so I, I, I took that on. As a positive way that I could impact my biological mother, and she had suffered already through so much uh, to even be in the position that she was in, uh, so that that being able to give back a little bit to her for the fact that I wouldn't be here without her um, was was not too much to ask.
4: Okay, well, those are very powerful words to end on. So we'll end that there. Thank you again for joining us this evening. And we are having a reception in the foyer. So please stay with us if you can.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore
1: ideas.